Look, Chihiro, there's your new school. Looks great, doesn't it? It doesn't look so bad. It's kind of steep. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, we're two halves of a whole, but we don't really get along, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, Nakia and I are sitting down for her first viewing of Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away from 2001. Nakia, we talked about our favorite animated movies a while back (laughs) during our episode on Watership Down. Which I think is the only animated movie we've watched, right? That sounds right. And you actually really liked that one. I did, yeah. So we are one for one (laughs) on animated movies so far. Sure. So we'll talk about the movie we're watching in a few minutes. But one of the characteristics of Miyazaki's work is his focus on childhood and specifically his commitment to young female protagonists. Mm -hmm. He has said, many of my movies have strong female leads. Brave, self-sufficient girls that don't think twice about fighting for what they believe in with all their heart. They'll need a friend or a supporter, but never a savior. Any woman is just as capable of being a hero as any man. (laughs) And he's also said, I find girls more grounded in reality and confident in themselves. And it's quite difficult to make films about boys. That's because stories about an eight-year-old boy, for example, inevitably become tragic. Which is a hell of a statement, and I'm not sure what it means. And the interview it was taken from, like, it didn't elaborate on that. Yeah, I would like to But I, I find that. that sentiment fascinating. Huh. And it kind of got me thinking about that and about young girl heroes in literature and movies. And especially in these sorts of fantasy or sort of adventure quest movies. Mm-hmm. And I, so I just started wondering if, if we can make any kind of gross generalizations <laughs> about girl protagonists. And I think we're not talking about teenagers. Like, it's, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk about Katniss Everdeen and the Hunger Games. Okay. Right? We're talking about young kids. Because mm-hmm. I, one thing I realized is I love a lot of those stories more deeply probably than a 50-year-old man should. Should you be on a list somewhere? Possibly I okay. should be on a list. But I loved them when I was a kid, too. Elementary school, I loved Ramona the Past. Mm-hmm. She was just a great character. I related to that character. I loved Alice in Wonderland. The Secret Garden, both the book and the 1995 movie. Wrinkle in Time, Mm -hmm. those books have a female character. So there's just a lot of those stories that I just really deeply love. And I know you, certainly some of your favorite movies, would fall into this category. Yeah, no, I was giving this some thought, and I was having, it was actually challenging for some reason. I couldn't quite put my finger on why I was having such a hard time with it. Because when you first said, you know, okay, we're going to be talking about female heroines and then specifically sort of young girls, then it was, okay, what makes them a hero? 
Right. Are they a hero in, to your point, in this sort of magical space where so many things are possible and possibly they also have some sort of magical power? Are they a hero just in their everyday life and are fighting against forces that are much more intractable? So I, I struggled with it a little bit, but I mean, the first thing that came to mind was uh, the character of Ophelia in Pan's Labyrinth, which yes. is one of my favorite films. I mean, I love pretty much everything that Guillermo del Toro does. And not to risk setting this up one way or the other, but I think this movie might remind you mm. of Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And Guillermo talks about this movie, so mm-hmm. we'll talk about that mm-hmm. later. But it really is the story of, you know, the young girl. She comes from a poor family. She marries into this... Well, her mother marries, like, a general who is very strident right. and disciplinarian. What is it? Spanish Civil War? I believe it's Spanish Civil War. But this whole time, she's a princess, and she did know she was a princess. Yeah. And then, you know, it's really all about what sacrifices and what growth she needs to make in order to really fully realize who she is. And it's just wonderfully told. It's also just beautiful, which comes with the territory with Guillermo. But that was sort of, to me, that's the quintessential for me, young girl hero in a fantasy story. And it's really this like finding of identity and claiming uh, this sort of claiming your own agency. Yeah, I think that's probably a big piece of these. And I guess one of my questions is, is it different? Is the story different with a girl than it is with a boy? Mm -hmm. I think in certain ways, maybe because of the sort of gendered ideas that we have around girls, it's a little bit more radical to have them be the hero than it is to have Mm -hmm. boys be the hero. I mean, usually these girls, and this is a gross generalization I'm doing right now, and I haven't given it enough thought, but they tend to be somehow transgressive. They aren't prim and proper girls. They don't necessarily fit into, oh, you're supposed to be sort of seen and not heard and quiet. And your whole purpose is to, you know, basically be in service to someone else. You know, they're the girls that get their skirts dirty. They're the girls that they read too much. Or they're the girls that, you know, are too outspoken, a little bit too smart for, you know, for the girl. And so I think it's that those sort of gendered expectations that make young female heroes maybe a little bit more interesting than boy heroes just because it's it is a little bit of, of a provocation and this idea i think it's interesting that you're saying let's focus on young girls and not teen girls because then i think what happens when we start to transition into older young women there's a whole thing of like the sexualization of those characters that comes right. in that changes it a little bit but yeah so i think it's just they don't quite fit and I think that that's why they're they're sort of interesting. Yeah, you're right. Almost by definition, if they're the protagonist of the story, mm-hmm. there's a transgressive element, a, a rebellious element mm-hmm. to that. I mean, I think about, you know, I spent eight years of my life writing about Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And when I go back and look at the very first review, I, I didn't really like that show. The only thing I, that hooked me was Arya Stark. Mm-hmm. And she was very much that character. A little bit tomboyish. But she wanted to do all the stuff that people were telling her she could not do. And that, I think there's something very appealing about that. There is a lot of hardship in these stories. These kids have it rough. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, that's part of the appeal, right? Is that they have this sort of bottomless well of courage and... Pluck. Pluck, sure. <laughs> Which, that's that's a word you hear. Whenever somebody describes a girl protagonist in these stories, she's so plucky. She's Alice plucky. in Wonderland is so plucky. Very plucky. 
what, what, what the hell is pluck? And is that a coded sexist word? I think it is coded. So, again, I was doing some research before we had this conversation. I did see it in reference to some young boy characters, but by and large, it is used to describe young girls and even women. Because when I was doing my very sophisticated Google research, <laughs> it also came up talking about Reese Witherspoon's character in... Um, What's the one where she is a lawyer, becomes a lawyer? Legally blonde. Legally blonde. He's like, Reese Witherspoon <laughs> plays the plucky blah, blah, blah. Um, okay. So even still using it. So there's something a little patronizing. It is. It's very plucky, patronizing. Right? It's very, it, again, it's a very, to me, it sounds a, it very gendered of like, oh, she's plucky. And it almost is a little bit diminishing and infantilizing in a way. Yeah. So that, it's an interesting word, pluck. <laughs> And yet, I, I know I find myself using that word about, like, a lot of these people. And it means slightly different things, I think. I mm-hmm. mean, I love, again, this is 50-year-old man saying, I love Anne of Green Gables. Mm-hmm. Both the books and the series from the 80s. And that's a character I would describe as plucky, but she's interesting because she's, I don't know if you've seen or read any of those. I have not, okay. no. She's not a tomboy. Mm-hmm. She's not rebellious. She's very feminine. Mm-hmm. But she just has this insane imagination and this kind of, you know, unbreakable spirit. Mm -hmm. And again, her life is horror (laughs) before the story. Like her parents died and she, you know, was taken in by... Yeah, yeah. she had to work for terrible people and was abused. And I mean, it was just horror. And that, I think, is one of those elements that we admire in these characters is their resilience Mm -hmm. and their sort of indomitable spirit. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, I'm not sure we do with boys. With boys, it's more, is it, I think it's, I don't know. I don't know what, that's what I was trying to get to the, like, okay, maybe here's one way to approach it. Okay. How do we see differently Scout Finch and Jem Finch? I mean, Jem is older, so that's Jim is one older, factor. Right. But we think of them differently, don't we? We do. We care more about Scout than we care about Right, Jim. but why? I mean, it's from her point of view. Right, I think so that's, that's part of it, yes. I don't know, maybe we do like, because see, that gets complicated. I was going to say, well, maybe we just sort of latch on to the misfits and we want to see them succeed. And they've, because they're so different, we want them to sort of overcome and we want them to. Yeah. I mean, I was actually thinking about that because I was, I have not read Ramona the Pest since I was a kid. (laughs) But I pulled up the Wikipedia and I read the description of it. And her first day of school is remarkably like Scout Finch's first day Mm. of school. Where, you know, first day of school, you're all excited to go to school. You're trying to do everything right. And then you just fuck it up. Yeah. And, like, she just gets in trouble. And yep. it just turns into this. And we feel sorry for her. And we're invested in her success for that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I, I think it's I think it's an interesting question. And I don't... I mean, I just haven't given enough thought of, like, why is it that it is different with the female characters than it is with... I mean, I feel like a big part of it is that we would expect Jem... To be the hero, the hero of that mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. It would not be surprising. It would not be remarkable in the same way that it is with Scout. Scout. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So I guess it, it does come back to that. They are inherently throwing off expectations. And so that makes you invested in them in a different way. Mm-hmm. They just become more interesting. All right. Do you have some other favorites you want to mention? Um. So I was a fan of Pippi Longstocking. <laughs> I don't really remember was she like super strong or something? She was very strong. Okay. She was definitely I don't remember Tom Boyish. I don't know that well. she had like a hard life. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> oh, probably. <laughs> so I do remember Whole reading a lot of died in a fire Pippi Longstocking growing up. And then I was trying, and again, I kept going back and forth between this, like, well, a character like, for example, Hush Puppy in Beasts of the Southern, in Beasts Wild, of the Southern Wild, 
while it was, it did play in this sort of Southern Gothic magical atmosphere, it was very real. Like she was living in extreme poverty. Well, no, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is that too. Right, yeah. It's like, so it's very real. Um, Like genuine horrors. Yes. And so it it feels silly almost to use a word like plucky in those, those sorts of environments where I was like, oh, but she shouldn't have to be. Like she shouldn't have to be plucky. She should, particularly in the case of Hush Puppy, was like somebody should just be taking care of her. Yeah. And then there is Keisha Knight Palayam in Polly. She was very much like young girl hero. And that has another layer to it, though, too, of like who historically has been able to be this type of character. Right. Because then I started finding myself actively saying, okay, well, yes, Matilda and yes, (laughs) um, Scout and folks like that. But where are the sort of young black girl stories? Right. I was going to ask you that. So Polly is one of those. See, I haven't seen that. Not surprisingly. It's actually really good. I like Polly. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, it's like, even in the transgression, they are also still very much in line with what we think a hero should look like oftentimes. So, they are oftentimes right. white. They are oftentimes fairly thin, usually. Um, even if they have glasses and they're supposed to be sort of plain, they are conventionally attractive. I mean, we, did, we did get Ava's version of... We did get wrinkle, Ava's version wrinkle of Wrinkle in time, time, which was very nice. Which I, I didn't love the movie, mm-hmm. I thought, because I'm a huge fan of those books. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't love the screenplay, but Storm Reid was, was great fantastic as, as She was Meg. great. She was really yeah. great. So, yeah, I mean, I think when you start to think about different ways that that sort of character can be represented, who's allowed to be a young girl... And just experience young girl things. You know, one of my favorite Spike Lee movies is Crooklyn. Mm -hmm. And Troy, they call her Troy the boy in the movie. But, you know, so... We did an episode on that. Yeah. So she gets to be a girl. She gets to, Mm -hmm. like, you're just seeing her with her friends and family in the summer. And yet there's this undercurrent of things that are very... But she does, I mean, we talked on that episode about she is expected to take care of the boys. The boys are allowed to be children. Mm -hmm. She has to grow up a little too fast. Right. So, yeah. So, it's like, it gets to this question of, you know, that window of grace that young girls have. I don't know that it's the same window for all girls. For a lot of girls, that window is very is much shorter than others and is interrupted by forces that are structural in a way that magic is not going to fix. And mm-hmm. enough courage and enough pluck is not going to fix. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. So I don't know. Well, and this is and I and I come back to that Miyazaki quote about how he said, I find girls more grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. Which some of that is maybe necessity. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's that lack of male privilege. It's boys get to do what they want. Girls are, are stuck being grounded in reality yeah. a little bit. Girls are usually very aware of their limitations mm-hmm. and what they are allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And again, I think they're aware of that window. Because at a certain point, you're now marrying age. Right. And you have to leave all that behind. Or right. you're now sexualized by the outside world and all of that gets left behind. Right. Or any number of things, right? Something I was just reading was talking about the female characters in Miyazaki's movies who are, whatever their age, not at all sexualized mm-hmm. and not even that cute. Intentionally not very pretty little children or mm-hmm. very, you know, adorable little children. Mm-hmm. And then comparing that to, say, Aladdin, in which 
Jasmine, I think she's supposed to be 14 or 15 in that movie and is totally yeah, sexualized. She's, yeah, yeah. Jasmine's hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she's also very smart and very strong. And the whole point sure. of Jasmine's character is like she she is she's a, she has agency. But yeah, so it is, I think it's an interesting trope. Every time I watch a Miyazaki movie, I learn something new about the craft of filmmaking. Miyazaki-san is the most original filmmaker ever to work in our medium. An artist of incredible sensitivity and vision. His films are made with such heart and skill and nobility of intent. They gently and piercingly awaken in their viewers a passionate appreciation of the simple and profound gifts we are given in our lives. From the beauty of the natural world to the opportunities we have to use our talents for the benefit of others. Hayao Miyazaki has deeply influenced animation forever, inspiring generations of artists to work in our medium and illuminating its limitless potential. His films are gifts to everyone who loves the cinema and they will be watched and cherished as long as movies exist. In stature, in influence, in the range and quality of his body of work, there will never be another to rival him. Okay, let's segue here into talking about this movie. Mm-hmm. So you have not seen any Miyazaki films. You've not seen any of the Studio Ghibli no, I have not. movies, right? No. Okay. I actually don't think that's that unusual. For one thing, they are now public service announcement all on HBO Max, mm-hmm. or most of them are, but they have not been streaming previously. Okay, okay. Um, so they have not been easily Accessible, available. yeah. And there's actually a lot of them I have not seen, um, which I'm sort of okay on. I kind of like... Like, they're there when I get to them. I kind of like knowing they're there. (laughs) Miyazaki's 79. He has retired about three times. Mm. I think he's actually supposed to have something new coming. But he's not going to make a lot more movies. There's authors like that, too, that I love. They've got some books I haven't read, and I like knowing that they're there if I need them. Okay. But Miyazaki, so he was born 1941 in Tokyo. He So he grew up, you know, during the war and in the mm. years immediately after the war. He went into animation right out of college, working for various studios. And then he directed his first feature in 1979, The Castle of Cagliostro. And then in 1985, he and several other animators founded Studio Ghibli. Their first film was 1986's Castle in the Sky. And then they released two films in 1988 as a double bill which has got to be one of the greatest double bills ever released. Hmm. Um, It's Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies and Miyazaki's My Neighbor Totoro. My Neighbor Totoro, I thought about, that's the other one that I would make you watch. There's a reference to that one in a Bob's Burgers episode. Is there? When he drinks absinthe, (laughs) he has a whole (laughs) hallucination. That's very cute. Uh, Yeah, Totoro is a very... Like, that's, he's the logo of Studio Ghibli mm-hmm. now, and he's he's sort of their Mickey Mouse. He's, like, the most recognizable character from any of these movies. And I just rewatched that. It's, I don't know that it would be a great conversation, because it's a much simpler movie. It's mm-hmm. very, it's geared younger than Spirited Away is. And it's, it's just very simple and very charming. It's wonderful. I love that movie so much. Uh, I don't know how much we'd find it about it though so we should just watch it one of these days just for enjoyment for fun okay. yes remember when we used to do that just do watch a film for <laughs> watch fun. a film and yeah not have to do homework 
But yeah, so those and Grave of the Fireflies is I uh, I've only seen that once and it was a long time ago. I don't remember, but it's it that's actually two kids during the war trying to survive and mm. it's very sad. So those two movies, they're both emotional, completely different frequencies, but just I, I can't even imagine what that double bill would have been like. But those two movies established Studio Ghibli as a major player in the world. Mm-hmm. Roger Ebert said of Totoro, Here's a children's film made for the world we should live in rather than the one we occupy. A film with no villains, no fight scenes, no evil adults, no fighting between the two kids, no scary monsters, no darkness before the dawn. A world that is benign, a world where if you meet a strange towering creature in the forest, you curl up on its tummy and have a nap. (laughs) That's the kind of movie that is. That sounds really good right about now. Right? Yeah. So they have released... 20 feature films to date. 11 of those were directed by Miyazaki. 14 were written by him. And these films <laughs> average a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I honestly don't know who the two or three critics out there in the world are who don't like these <laughs> movies. I, I think Miyazaki is a genius. And I think, you know, obviously I don't know him personally. He just seems like a really good guy. Mm -hmm. He's one of those people that if you found out something terrible about them, it would crush you. (laughs) Because he just seems like such a decent human being. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's a staunch pacifist. He's pro-environment. He's anti-military. He's anti-consumerism. Like, he just seems like a really decent human being. Spirited Away was nominated for and won the Academy Award for Best Animated Movie. Mm. And Miyazaki skipped the Oscars because he said, I don't want to go to a country that's bombing. This was during the Iraq War. He said, I'm not going to go to a country that's bombing Iraq. Yeah, he seems like a good guy. Spirited Away is Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli's best-known film internationally and its most successful it was the first film to gross $200 million before ever opening in the U.S. Wow. And it is still the highest grossing movie ever in Japan, ahead of Titanic, Frozen, Avatar, Titanic. and the Harry Potter movies. And Avatar. Fuck off. <laughs> All right. In 2017, the New York Times named it the second best film of the century so far. Wow. After There Will Be Blood, which you... Oh, f- like what that. the... F- so, <laughs> grain of salt there, oh I guess. <laughs> but that was where uh, Guillermo del Toro talked about the movie in that article. He said, of course, I have a huge kinship with Miyazaki. The same sense of loss and melancholy and tragedy is what I tried to do in Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. There is a moment in which beauty moves you in a way that is impossible to describe. It's not that it's a fabrication, it's that it's an artistic act, and you know nothing you will encounter in the natural world will be that pure. (laughs) Miyazaki has that power. So yeah, not to, you know, get your expectations high. (laughs) I haven't seen enough Miyazaki movies to say this is his masterpiece. I do think it's a masterpiece. (laughs) It's, It's so beautiful, and it's so weird, and it's so... I don't know what half of it means. Yeah, I'm really excited to sit down and watch this movie with you. I'm looking forward to it. All right, well, let's maybe go do that then. All right. Okay. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Honey, don't take a shortcut. You always get us lost. From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki. What is it? Come on, let's go in. I want to see what's on the other side. here. Get out of here now! What? Leave before it gets dark. You've got to get across the river. Go! I'll distract them. Mommy! 
Stealing your name. If you completely forget it, you'll never find your way home. Your name belongs to me now. One girl's future depends on her judgment. Aren't you getting wet out there? I'll leave the door open for you. <gasps> her courage. It's Haku! He's hurt! Haku! Remembering one thing above all else. I want you to know my real name. It's Chihiro. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Experience a magical movie phenomenon. Embraced by all the world. Let's go! This fall, prepare to be spirited away. And we're back. During the break, Nikia and I watched Spirited Away. Uh, Nikia, let's maybe start off looking at Roger Ebert's review. He said, Spirited Away is surely one of the finest of all animated films. Viewing Hayao Miyazaki Spirited Away for the third time, I was struck by equality between generosity and love. And he says, Miyazaki says he made the film specifically for 10-year-old girls. That is why it plays so powerfully for adult viewers. Movies made for everybody are actually made for nobody in particular. Movies about specific characters in a detailed world are spellbinding because they make no attempt to cater to us. They are defiantly, triumphantly themselves. And I think that's, that's how I feel. It's so much itself. It's mm -hmm. so much... All of Miyazaki's films are like that. There is just this singular, decent, very weird vision behind them. And I think that's why I love them. You know, as much as I love the Pixar movies, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. I think those are very much, you can tell there's a corporate mentality behind them. There's a certain level of made by committee to them. Mm -hmm. This is not like this. How did this work for you? I really enjoyed this film. <laughs> Good. I really, really did. I, um, I, yeah. I would have been worried if you came <laughs> in. You know. No, I thought, I mean, I think, you know, Roger Ebert had it spot on. It really is such a specific vision and detailed world with no interest in really explaining anything to mm -hmm. the viewer. It's just, you just have to sort of enjoy it. And it just sort of, you you sort of completely fall into it and you become um, enchanted by it. And it is that perfect mixture of fun and whimsy, but also menace. That's, Little hint of darkness. Yeah, that's, that's, mm -hmm. that makes sort of, quote unquote, children's stories really good, right. I think. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it very much. Okay. One of the things Ebert talks about in that piece is just the incredible amount of detail that is in the movie mm -hmm. that really doesn't need to be there. Mm -hmm. Like, he shows us a lot of stuff that it, it would have been 
much easier from every perspective to show us less. Mm -hmm. But the frame is so busy. There's so much stuff going on in the background. We feel like there's things happening all the time in the background. Characters that we don't even meet that Mm -hmm. look interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what contributes to the feeling that there is an actual universe. It is a world. All of the different characters at the bathhouse are so unique in their own way. And even when they're in the background, they are still sort of fully formed and fully Mm -hmm. realized. And so I think that that just contributes to... One, it's almost like it's a respect thing, which sounds weird, but it's like it's a respect of the universe that he and his his fellow artists are creating. And this idea that you can almost pick up any story in that world and it would be Mm -hmm. a fully, you know, realized story. And I think it's also the animation style. We've sort of moved into this space of the CGI and it's all, it's really well done Mm -hmm. and it looks amazing. But I love Mm hand-drawn cells. I just think there's such sort of richness in it and movement and it does allow you to sort of fill in all the corners of the screen in a way that I don't... I feel like CG, some of those Pixar films, while they are very detailed, can sometimes feel sparse in their yes. modernity. So, yeah. I, yeah, this... He... And he has talked a lot about this. Um, I think this was a right around the time, I don't know if this was the first movie, where they were starting to use computers a little bit. Mm-hmm. But he said it always started with the hand-drawn image. Mm-hmm. And then if the computer could make that work a little easier, they would use the computers mm-hmm. to do that. I think Studio Ghibli is now, I think they are scheduled to release their first all-computer-generated mm. movie. And they are moving away from hand-drawn. Yeah. They said it's too expensive to yeah. do. It's too time-consuming. Um, Miyazaki says, I can't get the good brushes anymore. Oh. I can't get the good paper anymore. Stuff like that. Yeah. So these, this is really it's a dying art, a dying art, unfortunately, yeah. but I'm glad we have these movies. But what you said about the, you know, the richness of the world, I think that also that incredible level of detail and all the things going off, you know, sort of in the background of scenes contributes to that feeling of the little girl who's lost in this world, mm-hmm. right? That's like, that's, I think it really captures that feeling of a child in an adult world she doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And that there's all these things going on and there's all these rules she doesn't understand. Uh, I think that's hard to capture. And I think that mo- this movie captures it about as well as anything. Mm-hmm. And he has said, when he was asked why it was a bathhouse, he said, he said, well, when I was a kid, the bathhouse was a mysterious place. Like, mm. You know, so it was... That's actually really this interesting. This mysterious adult place where yeah. adult things happened. That you didn't have any insight into what was going on in there. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. That's actually a really interesting idea. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's just kind of go through this a little bit, because I think there's just a lot of great pieces and set pieces and characters. Um, so we start off with <laughs> Chiro and her parents driving into this new town where mm-hmm. they're moving. She is not happy about this. Well, she's a 10-year-old girl who just had to leave her friends and her hometown and... <laughs> Apparently, they're moving to, it sounds like, the suburbs where there was nothing, yeah. and you basically had to leave to get anything. Um, so, understandably, <laughs> not happy. But our first shots of her are so, like, she's just sort of, like, sulking mm-hmm. in the back seat, mm-hmm. And just the physicality of that character is amazing mm-hmm. in this movie. And again, just that very sp- specific observation of, of a child that age, mm-hmm. I think, is so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that Miyazaki is able to express so much just with her face alone and, is, you know, how she's sitting, how she's clutching the bouquet of flowers. You know, the only bouquet she ever got was the mm-hmm. farewell bouquet, which was very just dramatic <laughs> and a very just childlike thing to say. 
Yeah, and then her parents say, well, we gave you flowers yeah. once. So, and she's like, that doesn't that count. That doesn't count as anything. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's you, you know who that character mm. is pretty much from the start of the film. And he has said that he based this on the, the children of friends of his, mm-hmm. that he was that, that age. And you can just tell the specificity of the observation of it. That there's, like, when she puts her shoes on, the way she sort of taps her foot to mm-hmm. get her foot right in the sneaker. Um, there's a shot I love later. I think it's when, in the baths when they're in the big, the big tub. And she falls off the tub and she's sitting on the floor and she's got her like legs sort of crossed and she's got her toes hooked together. <laughs> like her, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. her big toes hooked together. And it's such a weird little detail, yeah. but it's like so accurate. Yeah. And I feel like that's sort of the, the MO of this entire film is like, it's not necessary, but it is because right. it, it again, it brings you into the world. It makes you connect with the characters and to your point, it gives it a very specific identity. And, you you know, we always sort of say, well, universality is the thing that we should be looking for. It's like it is, it's in the specifics that we find the universality mm-hmm. because we, you know. And he has said, he said, I, I had made movies for, I had made movies with younger kids. I had made movies with teenage girls. I had made movies with boys. This was, he said, I'd never done a 10-year-old mm-hmm. girl. And mm-hmm. so it was very specific. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, we're with the parents. We end up in this. They, they take a, a bad turn. Yes. Uh, what's your rule about listening to children? In, in general. <laughs> in horror movies, If a child movies, is anything. sort of freaking out weirdly, you maybe want to give it at least a second thought of like, why is she, she reacting? She in right away. She's like, this is not the place for us. <laughs> Let's go ahead and turn back. How about we don't walk down what this dark tunnel? What are all these tunnel? shrine yeah, things? This is what? weird. There's a weird wind happening here. <laughs> it's just so... Oh, yeah, it's, you know. Yeah, but they don't listen. Right. And again, that's a very 10-year-old girl. Like, your parents aren't listening to anything that you're saying. Yeah. It's just like, you need to get over yourself. <laughs> but yeah, so they, you know, much to her uh, dismay, they go through the tunnel and find themselves, unbeknownst to them, in a spirit world where they do not belong. Right. Yes. <laughs> where they immediately sit down to eat a meal. Yes. And there's this whole, there's a whole theme of, consumerism and, greed. and gluttony yeah. mm-hmm. and greed mm-hmm. running throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something else he said. They actually asked him if if it was about like child prostitution, if that was that mm. kind of bathhouse, which puts a very dark yeah, spin on a, a lot of stuff in this movie. Yeah. We can probably talk about that as we go through. But what he said was, well, sort of, because I think modern society or modern Japan, he was talking about, mm-hmm. I think, you know, there is an element of sort of prostitution inherently exploited. to that. Yeah. So to the yeah. extent that he was trying to express that in this movie, then mm-hmm. that is there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they just, they come across this meal. Bountiful meats and treats and things and just, you know, assume that they can have it. Yeah. Dad's like, I got credit cards. I can Don't pay worry, we'll pay for it. And it actually reminded me of that scene in Pan's Labyrinth where Ophelia comes across that big banquet table mm-hmm. and it's just, be- it's beautifully set. Um, and she's, you know, obviously starving and wants to eat. And then the creepy hand monster <laughs> is sort of just waiting there for her to touch something. The rules in fairy tales of every culture. Yeah, don't eat rules anything. rules are, you know, don't you got to be food. very careful don't eat the, see, that's about eating stuff. Another sort of black family adage. We don't eat everybody's food. You don't, we don't, <laughs> you don't know who made it and where did it come from before you eat it's it. It's probably under season. Exactly. So just don't eat, we don't eat everybody's food. <laughs> so <laughs> another reason why black people survive. 
survive in the story. We don't eat everybody's food. Um, yes. But she refuses. She's like, I'm yes. not eating that stuff. And style. she's you telling them, are... like, y'all need to not be eating this food. <laughs> but they sort of chow down. Very, it is definitely a rapturous and sensual moment for them. <laughs> That's just, like, borderline it's, inappropriate. Yeah, it's kind of gross to watch. <laughs> <It's just> like... <laughs> but yes, so she wanders off, of course. Mm-hmm. And is sort of strolling through this abandoned, um, I think it's like a a theme park sort of place. And she comes across a bridge. And almost immediately, you know, the skies start to darken. Mm -hmm. And she meets Haku. Right. And this, again, it's all very... I mean, I think think on the one hand, it's... There's all this very archetypal hero's journey stuff Mm -hmm. going on in here. Where, you know, she goes the bridge she meets her guide mm-hmm. that's a figure that appears in a lot of these stories but it doesn't feel overly constructed it's all it, i think it's all very organic mm-hmm. but yeah so she meets haku this boy who tells her to get the fuck back to wherever <laughs> she came from before the street lights come on basically uh so she is that does she just run back at yeah that she point? runs back and that's actually one of that's a really beautiful scene the way that the light changes and then, oh God, there, and then all those, the lantern lights start yeah. to pop up. And then the, the ghosts. The specters sort of come out. It's really Those are done. creepy. They are, because they're sort of semi-transparent. Yeah, they're just shadows. They're, it's, it's, I thought it was be- beautifully animated. I love that scene. Yeah, I find those creepier than some of the more mm-hmm. well-realized characters. Mm-hmm. Later on the train, we see those people yeah. too, just those shadow people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so she goes, goes back to get her parents and they problems. <laughs> They've turned into huge pigs. <laughs> Literally pigs. <laughs> and I, she, she thinks she's dreaming. She's mm-hmm. like, okay, I must be dreaming. She's like banging on her head. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Is that when she starts to fade? Yes. Yeah. She starts to become transparent because mm-hmm. she doesn't belong in this world. And then there's Haku breaking the eat rule though. Yes. He's telling her you need to eat this in order to sort of remain. Right. You need to eat something in this world mm-hmm. to stay here. Yeah. And he gives her something. He's very helpful. Haku. He's, He's always very good. helpful. But he basically tells her, you know, if you're going to be here, you're going to have to work in order to survive. Um, and so he tells her to go find Gamaji and ask for a job right. and keep asking until he gives you a job. <laughs> this is already very menacing. It's like, yes. I'm, I'm a 10 year old kid. You're going to, I got to work. work. You got to work. This is capitalism. You got to work. If you want to survive, you got to get a job. You have any purpose here, you're going to have to earn your keep. Yes. So then we have the stair sequence, mm-hmm. which is just a great. That huge, long, incredibly steep staircase down to the bowels of this bathhouse. Mm-hmm. There's a whole hierarchy of, like, because he's Upstairs, at the bottom downstairs. and then, yeah. what's her name, Yubaba, yeah. is all the way at the top. So, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I love that stair sequence, again, just for the physicality of it. Mm-hmm. Like, she's scared to go down, so she, like, sits down and she tries to scoot down and then she slips and ends up. Not quite falling down the stairs, but like running out of right. control. Yeah, can't quite stop stairs herself. Like a kid does. Like, oh, I got too much momentum. Running <laughs> down the stairs. Okay, so yes, we then we meet Kamaji mm-hmm. in the boiler room. I love Kamaji. <laughs> okay, why? I, it's just such a weird ass character. <laughs> he's like half man, half spider. <laughs> he's got a, he's got way too many he has arms. A lot of arms, but it all like of course he does because he's he's sort of as you say like the nerve center of that entire yeah. place and so he needs to be managing all these different things um with this like broomstick of a of a of a mustache but yeah he's just such a it's just like a weird character and 
while, again, slightly menacing, he's also very avuncular. It's like a, a granddad. Yeah. It's just a very... Um, well, I think, I think throughout this movie, there nobody is... Evil, really. Completely no, evil no. or completely good. No. Um, a lot of people you meet like that you think are going mm-hmm. to be... Like, he looks like a villain. Mm-hmm. He looks like someone terrifying. And then he actually turns out to be... Very kinda, helpful kinda and sweet. Kind of sweet. Yes, yeah. very sweet. And he has... I don't even know what to call them. They're soot sprites. Soot sprites. <laughs> they're actually they they are in uh, Totoro too mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. but they really get there. But they are these star little like here. black puff balls <laughs> that carry lumps of coal into the furnace to sort of keep everything working, and they're just adorable. And again, it's just like who even thought of that? Yeah. And it's just a perfect little, totally unnecessary. Didn't need it, but it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And if you took them out, it, there would be something missing, right? But they're, uh, awesome. they're they're scurrying, carrying this coal across the floor. She's like in their way. They're bumping into <laughs> her, so she's like very sweetly trying to get out of their way. And then she helps. Right, one. she helps one because one of the little soot sprites is struggling under the weight of its coal. <laughs> so she picks the coal up and carries it to the furnace. And then all the other soot sprites are like, "Well, damn! Here, take mine too." <laughs> They're all like, "Oh, I'm struggling too." <laughs> this is heavy. <laughs> Very smart workers, immediate <laughs> uprising of like, well, hell, I need help too. Uh, and then we get the lesson of from Kumaji, who's like, you know, don't do nobody else's job. Focus on your own job. So he sends her to... Uh, Yubaba. Yubaba with Lynn, mm-hmm. this, this young woman who works in the bathhouse. Yes. So then we get sort of our first real look at the bathhouse as we go up in the elevator mm-hmm. to go see Yubaba. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big... What is that? Radish monster? I would not even be radish god. To what tell are we, you what, what are we calling what that? That guy? was <laughs> sort of elephanty. I don't know. <laughs> I have no. But again, it's just like it's there. All of the characters in the bathhouse are just so odd and but fully detailed. I think Yubaba says at one point that the bathhouse serves like eight million gods. gods. Yeah, from so, all over. Yeah, yeah. and but yeah, I mean they're they're just so well drawn and, and beautiful. <laughs> Even those that are just like terrifying and or disgusting, it's like that's actually it's it's a beautiful thing. Okay, so uh, talk to me about Yubaba. Uh, Yubaba is another character design that's just I don't know where the hell she came from. <laughs> um, she is somehow both small and giant, <laughs> uh, but she's. Sort of all head, really, yeah. and all nose, and just these piercing eyes, um, and has this ability to essentially just sort of float. Like, she's just... Mm-hmm. I, it's just, she's such a weird character. Um, but she's a witch, and she runs the bathhouse, and is essentially the, you know, exploitative overlord. Right, she's, she's the, the man. Yeah, the... she steals the names of all the workers, so that she basically owns them, um, and hoards the wealth in the sort of upper um, floors of the bathhouse. She's such a weird character. And then, we sort of later in the film, we see her sort of wrap herself in a shroud, yes. and turn into, like, a bird. A bird. And it's just, I, I can't even describe it. But she doesn't it even transform. It's no, like it's the just shroud the shroud and then it's just, becomes right. the wings. And, it's so. Because she already has a mini version of herself. Right. She's got a little mini me yeah. bird. That keeps watch. Right. Um, but like, I hear myself saying this, like, this is not going to make sense to anyone who hasn't seen it. <laughs> it's so difficult to explain, but it is so beautiful mm-hmm. the way that it's animated because it's just so seamless. Um, but again, it's. It's very weird and very odd. And it's always, for me in in films like this, I'm like, oh, somebody thought of that. Yeah. Like, that's a, somebody thought. Yeah. <laughs> like, wouldn't it be cool 
if she was a bird but not really a bird and it was just her physicality and the way that it meant it was, it's just really and Miyazaki by the way with this film and I apparently with most of his films does not start with a script mm. he starts drawing it he starts storyboarding it mm -hmm. and he says he follows it where hmm. it goes so it's like all this again just sort of comes out organically yeah she's yeah. also a mother she is a very loving mother <laughs> Though I don't know how, I mean, her baby spends most of the film buried under pillows, so I don't know how loving she is. But, yes, she has a very large baby the baby's physically like, could not have come out of her body. <laughs> I don't want to picture the anatomy or anything going on there. There was definitely some witchery happening there. But he is massive. He is a huge baby. <laughs> And again, somehow both very cute and frightening. Yeah, he is a little scary. <laughs> um, Spoiled yeah. rotten. Yes. Uh, doesn't go out. No, he stays He's, in the room. Yes, the, she's an overprotective yes. parent. Again, cause... but allows him to be buried under pillows the entire time. <laughs> he seems comfortable. I mean, SIDS is a real thing. But... <laughs> but yeah, so she, after much begging, she allows Chihiro to work in the bathhouse. Yeah. But she has to give up her name. Yes. So she, she becomes... sign a contract and give up her name. Sen. Right. And then we get to, uh, you know, the work in the bathhouse. Yeah. And what I like about this part of the movie is there's no magic... Re I mean, there's magic, but there's no... On the part of Chihiro, there's no magic. There's no trying to figure out a way out of it. She's just like, okay, I have to work. And right. that's how I'm going to free my parents. Like, I just have to do right. my work. And she just works. Which is, and I, I think about that coming back to our earlier conversation about female protagonists. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something there where it's like she is not, she's not even particularly active a lot of the time mm -hmm. in trying to solve problems. But she solves them by just being smart. Mm -hmm. Politeness is an important thing. Mm -hmm. You know, people keep reminding her to be polite. Lynn mm -hmm. keeps reminding, say thank you, say please, you know. But she's just decent. Yeah. She's just a good kid. Yeah. And she becomes a hero just through that, not mm -hmm. through any kind of... I mean, she has some heroics later right. in the movie, right. but mostly it's just she's a good person. She's doing her, and she's doing her job. Yeah. yeah. Conscientiously doing her job. Uh, yeah. So uh, one of her first clients is a stink god. <laughs> Let's talk about the stink god. The stink god. Yes. A massive <laughs> pile of sludge <laughs> that apparently smelled horrific <laughs> enough to, like you know, wilt the rice in uh, Lynn's bowls and things like that. But yes, she has... Everybody dread. They see this thing coming. It's like they have to serve it. They, yeah. they apparently can't keep it out. It's like, you know, they have to serve customers who come. Mm -hmm. But yes, this is not... No, no one's looking forward to this. No. So, of course, they give it to Chihiro. It's like, yes. You go do this. <laughs> But she gets some help. So she Oh, we have to talk about No Face. No here. Face. She sees No Face while she's doing her her work outside. And No Face is just sort of standing there watching her. Yeah, he was actually on the bridge when she came yeah. over, too. Just, yeah. Do we know that No Face is a boy or a male? Um, I think we can gender No Face, okay. sure. All right. I'm just asking. That's a good question. <laughs> I guess we don't know. We but do let's... not know No Face's gender. Um, but yes, so she invites No Face into the bathhouse because it's raining outside. Right. She's like, well, why Again, just being just, kind. Just nice. Just yeah. being really nice. Oh, you're standing out in the rain. Here, I'll leave the door open for you. Which, you know, is good and bad. <laughs> um. Sometimes kindness is not a good idea. <laughs> um, so No Face, so she goes to get, they have to get these like little plackets to put in the bath to make them herby and... Right. They're basically tokens that mm -hmm. so you can get 
herbal water right. and special water and right. everything. And apparently they're very stingy with them because she goes to ask the guy for tokens. And he's like, hell no. He's like, I'm not going to give you, I'm yeah. not, you know, I'm not going to waste that on you. So, but no face <laughs> just goes ahead and snatches a bunch of them from here. Just take these. Yeah. Um, which is the first sign of no faces generosity mm-hmm. that will come back later in a, in a much more harmful way. But so she gets her tokens and she's able to give, uh, the stink stink god the stink god <laughs> a bath uh-huh. and then discovers that it's not a stink god at all right she discovers he's full of garbage just pollution he yeah he's got a bicycle sticking yeah. out of he him he has all kinds of shit in him yeah yeah and she starts yanking stuff out of him and it turns out he was a river god mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who had been polluted because of you know environment you know <laughs> yeah that's it's an environmental statement there. Yeah, there you know, that runs through a lot of this movie too. Um, and again, Miyazaki has said that this was this was based on he actually you know helped volunteered to help clean up a river once, and there was an actual like bicycle <laughs> sticking in the mud that they had to pull out and stuff. So that's yeah. But I love that scene. It's, it's a great scene because it's so gross. It is. It's like he just looks like a big shit monster, mm-hmm. and then he's got these like purple bubbles of stuff that are coming off of him. Uh, but yeah, no, he was an old river god who'd yeah. just been choked with pollution. And she becomes like a little celebrity. Mm-hmm. Like the whole place is celebrating. Yay! Sen solved the stink god problem. <laughs> so again, she just she's starting to become a hero just by doing, doing her, her job, job and being good. Okay, but yeah, then No Face becomes a bigger problem. Literally. <laughs> she says later in the movie something like, I don't think the bathhouse is good yeah, for no Yeah, there was face. something about the bathhouse that uh, inspired a level of gluttony in No Face that was seemed to be unending to the point where he was eating not only food, but people. Well, <laughs> but, well not people, but yeah, some of the gods. It starts when he eats a frog yeah, he eats that a frog. works in the bathhouse. That he lures with gold. So he understands mm-hmm. the greed and the way that, you know, he can you attract people with money and then you eat them. Yeah. So, yeah, he becomes quite large <laughs> after eating many, many of the gods and other... Uh, and just gets hungrier. ...inhabitants of the bathhouse. And so he's, you know, puking up gold and eating people. Puking up gold and eating people. And uh, everybody in the bathhouse is whoring for tips. Yes. They are all just, you know, here's a client we can get a lot of money out of. Mm-hmm. So they're just catering to him. Uh, yeah, as a metaphor for, you know, capitalism, you know. consumerism, it's pretty pretty on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> Chew you up and spit you out for a little bit of gold. Okay, so meanwhile, when when does she figure out that Haku is a dragon? Somewhere around here. Okay. <laughs> but around the time, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of shit. She's dealing with a lot yeah, of shit. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So right around the same time, Haku in dragon form... <laughs> Uh, is being attacked by these little paper mm-hmm. things. I don't, yeah, like almost like hangman little things. These are these are an actual. Not everything. Apparently, some of this is like actual Japanese folklore stuff, and mm-hmm. some of it Miyazaki just made up. Mm-hmm. It's like when Totoro came out, everyone assumed that was an actual like wood spirit thing. No, he just made it up. <laughs> uh, but these are called. I have it here somewhere. Shikigami. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Obviously, I'm way out of my element here. But yes, little servant spirits that mm-hmm. apparently can inhabit paper or little mannequin things or whatever. But yes, so these are. We will learn these are servants of. Yubaba's sister. Zaniba. Yeah. Right. But yes, they are attacking him and cutting the shit out of him. Yes. There's a lot of blood in this section. Yes. Yeah, this is actually a pretty brutal like scene. Like, he's 
always flying around, leaving blood over everything. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we forgot to mention this. Okay. It's so many things. Um, again, in classic fairy tale mode, when she helped the stink god, she got a magical gift in return. Yes. This little ball of cake. Something, yeah. Uh, doesn't know doesn't know what to do with it. Doesn't know, but you know, it's obviously magical and it's obviously gonna be important later. <laughs> she tries to take a bite of it. She's like, Am I supposed to eat right. it? And then that's Nearly not vomits. right. Yeah. yeah no. no. Um, okay, so yes, we got the dragon, got all the paper cuts, and she knows she's figured out that that's Haku mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's trying to trying to help him. So now she's she's got heat. The dragon has flown, dying, up to Yubaba's suite of rooms. She can't get there, though, because No Face and his entourage, which is now the entire bathhouse, is blocking the way. Mm -hmm. So she's got to go up the outside of the building, running along the rain gutter or Mm -hmm. whatever to get up there and everything. And then she gets up there, and she's trying to get to Haku, but first she's got to deal with Big Baby. Who wants to play? She's like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll play with you later. And he's a manipulative little bastard. He's like, I will cry <laughs> if you do not play with me right now. Right now. <laughs> okay, somewhere in, right here is where we meet Zaneep. Where does Zaneba come from? So she follows the paper sprites. Because if you remember, one of the little paper sprites sticks to, to Chihiro. So right. she basically led Zaneba to where they were. Right. So she, what happened was that Yubaba sent Haku as a dragon to steal Zaniba's seal, which is apparently a very important witch <laughs> <Yeah>. totem of <laughs> some sort. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he was then cursed. <laughs> I was I was curious to see whether you got the, and, the confluence of yeah, events. Yeah. So he was, but it sounds like it was actually Yubaba that cursed him. <sighs> I, I think he. He took the seal from Zaniba, mm-hmm. and then Ubaba put a spell on the seal so she could control Haku or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the spell on the seal is Ubaba's. The seal belongs to It's complicated. Zaniba. It's so complicated. <laughs> Either way, it ends up with a very sick da- dragon. Yes. And then Zaniba turns the baby into a mouse. <laughs> What does she like? Have a body that matches your brain, yeah, or something, something like, that. like that, to him. And then Yubaba has these—I don't know what the fuck they are—like <laughs> three heads that just sort of roll they look around. Like, sort of her. like Frankenstein heads. Um, and they're sort of like those Muppet characters, like yep, 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 yep. Like they just make a noise. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they are. Um, but she turns them into the baby. Right. She turns them into the baby. She turns the baby into a mouse, and she turns. Yubaba's evil bird yes, familiar into like a little tiny into a little bird. is it a bug or is it just a little tiny bird? I think it's a tiny bird or a bug. I okay. don't know. It doesn't matter. So it's a whole new crew. <laughs> um, and she tries to kill Haku, but Chihiro saves Haku, <laughs> takes him down to um, right. Kamanji, rides him all right. the way down to the boiler room, right? With Kamanji, feeds him the little herb ball that she had, mm-hmm. and he spits up. What was Yubaba's curse? Right. Um, and he's able to sort of... <laughs> Which becomes this little black slug. Yeah, that they just that step on. She just steps on and squishes it between her There's toes. a lot of sludge in this movie. Um, <laughs> and so he turns back into, you know, human form Haku, but he's like in a coma or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But yeah. Okay, so let's let's stop here. Because this all... 
to, to anyone who has not seen this movie, it all sounds very it's, complicated. Yeah. The plot sounds very complicated. Did it feel that way when you were watching it? I think partially it didn't matter. Right. I wasn't, because I don't think, I think if you spend too much time trying to figure out the plot, or even sort of the strength is in there, I don't necessarily think it's like a super strong story, mm-hmm. really. Um, but it doesn't matter, because the world is just so interesting, and it really, you're just sort of experiencing it, and enjoying the experience of it. I feel like it it all has that sort of fairy tale mm-hmm. dream logic, and because you're so immersed in it, you just go with it. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, oh, okay, now there's a magic seal that we got to go, and now there's this thing, and yeah, you know, they they keep adding elements in. It's like, okay, yeah, sure, right, that, that makes some kind of sense. Yeah, uh, but again, if you were a Hollywood screenwriter trying to sit down and pitch this, it wouldn't in no sense at all. It would make no sense yeah. at all, right? Yeah. All right, so where are we? I don't know, dude. So we got to go to uh, Zibaba's, or no, that's not her name. Zaniba's. We got to go to Zaniba's. Right. Which is something she just decides. Yeah. She's like, okay, he spat up. I fed him the half. He, she fed him half the, the magic cake. Mm-hmm. He spit up the seal with the curse on it. She killed the curse, squishing it between her toes. Then the seal, and she's like, I'm going to return this to Zaniba. And I guess she, oh, because she thinks Haku is still dying. Yeah. Ha- Haku is not completely recovered. Yeah. She says, so I'm going to, I'm going to take this right to Zaniba. Do the right thing and return it, yeah. I'm going to apologize on Haku's behalf for stealing it. And then maybe she'll heal mm-hmm. Haku and make him better. Mm-hmm. Conveniently, the boiler man conveniently has tickets for the train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is just, again, it's like fairy tale. all these like magical gifts that you just get yeah. when you need them. Uh, so it gives her tickets to the train to go to uh, Swamp Bottom. Is that where I she I believe lives? that is where she's going. <laughs> yes. Okay, so she's going to go do that. But first... We got to deal with no face. We right. still have no face. Is just right. Just and I love Sand. She's just so matter of fact. She's like, okay, I'm gonna have to go go deal with no face first, mm-hmm. and so goes off to do that. And no face has become yeah as big as a house yes. at this point yes. and quite terrifying actually. Yes, but still very fond of Sen. Very fond of Sen. This is one of those if you if you read this as like a child prostitution mm. stories, no face becomes a problem. A very creepy. Yeah. Because he's like, I only want to give my gold to you, yeah. Sen. Yeah, let's, let's not do that. He's very obsessed with Sen. Okay, let's not. There's enough terribleness in the world. Let's not do that. that. I don't okay. want to do that. <laughs> but yeah, she's like, she's like, this place is not good for you, mm-hmm. dude. You are not. You were a very gentle spirit when you came in here. So she gives him the other half of the magic cake that the river god gave her. And she says, I was saving this for my parents, but I think you need it. Yeah. Which is totally selfless. Mm-hmm. And then he starts vomiting uncontrollably. Pretty much. All of the badness out of him. Uh, he vomits up. The frog. And the frog and all of the other people bad that Bad house ate. workers and, yes. Um, and eventually turns back into just this solitary, quiet ghost that he was when he came in. Mm-hmm. And then he just keeps following her. Yeah. He's like, well, she leads him out of the bathhouse because she's just like, this is not. Right. Yeah, you've got to get, you gotta out, get of out of here. This, <laughs> this is not a healthy environment for you. Right. <laughs> so he follows her to the train mm-hmm. and then goes on the train with her to Swamp Bottom. I love that train sequence. That's such a beautiful, beautiful sequence. Again, it's, you know, you have the sort of shadow figures of people that aren't fully filled in. Mm-hmm. And we don't even know why. Like, I didn't even, like... Are they ghosts? Are they right. just why are you know, they different? Right, than why the are other... they different? Um, but it's also just such a quiet sequence mm-hmm. that they could have easily cut. Like they didn't Absolutely. need to be again, not necessary, but totally necessary because it's just you know Chihiro, No Face, the baby rat, 
and the little bird <laughs> and they're just sitting on the train and she's just sort of like sit down and behave yourself and yep. they just sit there and it's <laughs> so just great. and this is again this is something Miyazaki talks about uh, he did a piece with Roger Ebert we were talking to Roger Ebert and he talked about I think the word he used was ma Mm-hmm. which is a Japanese word that means, like, emptiness or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, if you clap your hands, the sound between claps is ma. Mm. And he said that's so important to good storytelling. It's so important to our work. And he said it's what other animated movies get wrong, mm-hmm. that they don't have those little quiet Breathing moments, moments yeah. where you can build tension, where you can build emotion, where you can... And this movie is full of that. Yeah. It's really kind of a slow... It is. Movie it is. between these big set pieces. But so much to look at in those moments. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that train sequence is just gorgeous. Yeah. Um, okay, so then we, we get off the train. There's a little nod here, because Disney helped fund this movie. I think they put in like 10% mm-hmm. of the money for this movie. Oh, is that an homage to the Pixar light? That is the Pixar that's light. That's so cute. <laughs> this, yeah. That's a cute idea. It's hopping, hopping little Lantern. lamp that comes up, which I also just love that idea. It's yeah. like, you don't need to have lights along no. the whole road. The light will come to you <laughs> and hop along with you and guide your way. Yeah, I love that. And then we get to Zaniba's house. Mm-hmm. Which is much more modest. Yep. And looks like a grandma's house than She's her a grandma. Yeah. She's very... Which, when we saw her earlier, she was a little more menacing, yeah. but Well, here, they stole her shit, yeah. so... <laughs> but here she's totally sweet and mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think going into the bathhouse does not do it's good not things good for, for anybody. people. No, yeah. Bathhouse is evil. Uh, but she explains that she and Yubaba are two parts of the same whole. But very different. But very different. They don't get along. Um, but she's very mother. In fact, she's, in fact, Sen starts calling her granny. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, Sen apologizes to her, gives her the seal back, asks her to take the spells off. The, the baby <laughs> and the other thing. And she's like, oh, those spells wore off a long time yeah. ago. They can change back anytime they want. He doesn't want to. Yeah. He's like, he enjoys being a mouse. They were having a good time. <laughs> this is the first fun <laughs> baby has ever had in its life. Haku then shows up, right? No, well, Zaniba gives Chihiro a magic, um, like, hair tie. Oh, a magic hair tie. That's right. I forgot about the magic her. hair tie. And that's another just perfect little moment where she's tying up her ponytail and it's just it's very sweet and and the mouse and the bird and no face have helped weave weave it right and she says this is made from like the love of your friends mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. which is a really sweet moment yeah it's very cute um but yes yeah, so they go to leave haku shows up in full resplendent yes dragon beautiful form. dragon form and it's basically like okay let's go home and let's yeah. take, let's 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 end this. And No Face stays behind with Zaniba. It's very sweet. Yeah, it is because he's. I mean, he was just lonely. Yeah. that's really what he was. Yeah. And he found his place here. He seems to be good at sewing. Mm-hmm. We've established that while he was at at Granny's house. He's gonna hang out with Granny. He gets a little happy ending there. <laughs> okay. And then we get this really beautiful sequence of you know um, Chihiro riding Haku back to the bathhouse. And that's when we find out who Haku really was. Right. Because he had also had his name stolen when he came to the bathhouse. Mm -hmm. And then she has a memory of nearly drowning in a river. Right. All along, they've been like, we know each other somehow. Right. And then we find out that when she was younger, she fell in a river, she lost her shoe, and the river took her to safety. Yes. And the river was Haku. And it turned out that the river was Haku. And again, we have that environmental message, yes. too, because it says the river has since been built over. Mm-hmm. So that river no longer exists. Right. 
But yes, Haku is very happy to get his name back and to remember who he actually was. Mm-hmm. And then we just need to negotiate with Ubaba. Yes. Haku was already negotiated with her for, for Chihiro's release. But Ubaba says there are rules. She's got to have a test. Because, mm-hmm. of course, in a fairy tale, you got to have a little test. And the test is, can you figure out which pig is your parents? Because <laughs> we, we have earlier visited the barn right. with all the pigs. And there's like 200 fat pigs Identical looking pigs, yeah. That all look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ubaba puts out about a dozen pigs and says, okay, if you can tell me which ones are your parents, you can go home. Chiero's like, yeah, you tricky bitch. <laughs> None of these are my None parents. None of these are my parents. So she wins the test. I also like Baby there. Mm-hmm. Baby turns back into Big Baby, and he's he's been off having fun with, with Chiero, and he's like, Mom, do go. not be mean yeah, to my friend. Now he's like, you know, if, if you make her cry, I'm going to get really upset yeah. with you. <laughs> And then that's it. And then we're going home. Yeah. Uh, she goes back through... The tunnel with her parents, who have no idea that they her were parents pigs. parents have no idea any of this happened. Uh, they get back to the car, and the car's, like, covered with dust, like it's been there for three weeks. Yeah. I'm not sure how that's going to work. <laughs> like, because they're like, oh, we the movers should be at the house by now. It's like, yeah. did the movers come and go three weeks ago? I don't know. what. Yeah. Your job is gone. Everything is gone. <laughs> do you think Chiro remembers? I do. You do? I do. Because we don't really get a clue of that. We don't. I mean, it ends before there's. Because she walks sort of... out normally yeah. with her parents. In yeah. fact, in fact, I think that whole sequence is literally the same sequence as just when they backward, went in, yeah. just reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't. I don't know how much she's going to remember from this experience. In the in the American dub, the the English version, they there's a there's another line added at the end there that where they there's some dialogue where her parents say something about. You know, are you still worried about going to your new school? Mm-hmm. And Giero says something like, I think I can handle it. Mm. Like she's learned and right. grown yeah. from this experience, which is okay. I feel it's a very I like, American I like the, yeah. it is very American very to wrap American. that up in a bow at mm-hmm. the end and, and make that point. It's not necessary. No. Well, and in this one, I mean, they do a little bit of a close up on her, her hair tie. Yeah, and, like, the hair tie is the still sun. there. So yeah. it is like, you know, she's taking her friends and her experience with her mm-hmm. and they will protect her. So I, th- I think she remembers. Yeah. And that's spirited away. That is spirited away. <laughs> okay, so do you have favorite parts of this movie? Um, I mean, I think I called out the scenes that I really enjoyed. I like that first scene where she's in the theme park and it's getting dark and she's running back to her parents just only to find them to be pigs. I thought that was beautifully animated. The train sequence was beautiful. There's another quiet scene where she, once she's in the bathhouse and she's working, she's standing on sort of the balcony looking out on the water. And again, totally quiet. Mm. There's no reason mm-hmm. for that scene other than just looking at the beautiful animated water. Um, and she's, I think she's looking at a, there's something it, like swimming in the water. I can't remember exactly mm. what it was. But yeah, I mean, I just think. You like the quiet. The I quiet really moments. like the quiet moments just because it really does. It gives you that space. And the animation is just so beautiful. And that is, again, coming back. And it's, I don't, I'm not shitting on Disney and Pixar when mm-hmm. I say this. But I think the movie closest to this in the Pixar canon is Coco, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of the same. Mm-hmm. We're literally, in fact, I, it would surprise me if they didn't have Spirited Away in mind mm. when they made Coco. It's going over the bridge right. and the land to the spirit world, all yeah. of that. But it's just <clears throat> so busy and it's yeah. so cluttered and it's so loud all the time. And I do think that's the difference. Yeah. It's just a magic that is created here that that doesn't quite have, even though as much as I love Coco. Yeah. Okay, so will you watch more of these movies? Absolutely, yeah. 
Okay, anything else? No, you did good for once. Nice of you to say so, <laughs> dear. In my culture, death is not the end. It's more of a stepping off point. You reach out with both hands and bust and segment. They lead you into the green veld where before we leave this week, Nikki and I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Chadwick Boseman. That news broke just a few days ago as we record this, and it just, it felt like such an unfathomable blow. Uh, he was only 43, he had already achieved so much, including starring in one of the highest grossing and most culturally important movies of all time, and he just, he had such an incredible career ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty heartbreaking in the middle of what had already been a heartbreaking year. Um, And there's all kinds of reasons why this is sad. It's sad because fuck cancer. It's sad because he was 43. It's sad because, you know, um, black people are more likely to be sort of diagnosed later and subsequently die because of cancer and colorectal cancer specifically. And I also think it happening now where I don't know that we, not that we can, there's a right or wrong way to mourn, but I don't know that we have fully collectively mourned all of the death Mm -hmm. that is happening right now. And so I think this death in particular was one that we could all sort of rally around and and Mm -hmm. sort of do that release of like just collective mourning that we maybe haven't been doing over the course of the COVID crisis. And then it's... It is sad because this was an artist who gave so much and genuinely just seemed like a decent person, just kind and really thoughtful. And even in the roles that he chose, I mean, he, from what I've read, he was diagnosed, I think they said about four years ago, which meant he knew for most of his career where, where he was sort of mainstream and known to us. And so that does put his choices into a little bit of stark relief. It was like, I think there was sometimes a little bit of mocking of like, you know, oh, Chadwick Boseman's going to play all the, you know, the black people. Right. But it was obviously a choice he made. He's, yeah. uh, you know, like, I these are the stories. These I are the stories tell. that I want to tell with my time. And so you get Thurgood Marshall, you get Jackie Robinson, you get James Brown, you get T'Challa, um, even his character in Five Bloods. Like that was an intentional choice to elevate black heroes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous loss on a number of different levels. And I just, I mean, I think in general, we, we mourn celebrity deaths selfishly, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, we don't mourn the same way that his wife and his family and right. his friends oh, no. are mourning yeah. right yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. We mourn the work that we're not going to get. Right. And I just keep remembering when Black Panther came out. I mean, you, and we did an episode on Black Panther and we talked about this. That movie coming out sustained you for the first year of the Trump presidency. It really did. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> it did. And then when it finally did come out, it just felt like such a gift and mm-hmm. it felt so necessary. And it's just, and that's part of what makes this so hard right now is it's like, that's what we need again right yeah. now yeah. at what we hope is the end of the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that, it just makes this feel like such an extra cruel blow. It does. And I mean, Black Panther was such a community moment. Like it was, people went multiple times and people went with their communities and they, it was a celebration of something that we had wanted to see for so long. And then to have it be brilliant, that it's finally here and it was brilliant and so well done, Mm -hmm. um, was just like a triumph that really did shift so many things. And, you know, so many kids got to see that. And I, I, like, I can't fathom having been able to grow up with something like that. That is a gift that we will never be able to fully repay. Has it changed the industry? 
Has it actually changed the way this industry works, um, how it sees us? And, and my answer to that is to be young, gifted, and black. Um, we all know what it's like to be told that there is not a place for you to be featured, yet you are young, gifted, and black. We know what it's like to be told to say there's not a, a screen for you to be featured on, a stage for you to be featured on. We know what it's like to be the tail and not the head. We know what it's like to be beneath and not above. And that is what we went to work with every day because we knew not that we would be around during award season or that it would make a billion dollars, but we knew that we had something special that we wanted to give the world, that we could be full human beings in the roles that we were playing, that we, cre we could create a world that exemplified a world that we wanted to see. We knew that we had something that we wanted to give. And one thing I do know, what did it change the industry? I know that you can't have a Black Panther now without a two on it. So we love you and we celebrate it. <laughs>